0: listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're exploring the future of work and how all students can be prepared for what's ahead. Dr. Christina Gardner-McCune, an assistant professor in the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Department at the University of Florida, is joining today's podcast to talk about how a love for astrology led her to computer science, the big ideas in artificial intelligence that all students should know how we can encourage more women and minorities to learn about computer science and her predictions on the future of work. Let's listen in to Janice and Christina's recent conversation.
1: Dr. Christina Gardner-McCune, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. Oh,
2: well, thank you for having me, Janice. I'm excited to be here with you today.
1: I'm excited to talk to you because we had the opportunity to talk about the future of work a few weeks ago, and I'm really excited to hear more of your thoughts on what's ahead. So let's start off with your background. How'd you end up choosing computer science as a path?
2: Oh, I have like a really interesting story about how I got got into computer science. Um, surprisingly, I started with astrology. I um, was really, really interested in astrology when I was high school. So like every student in high school, I was trying to figure out who I was and what I was interested in and. So um, I used to spend hours on my bed with a box of coloring pencils and stacks of astrology books, charting out who I was at the time of my birth, trying to identify like what were the particular planets, you know, what location were the planets in and what sign and and what did that mean for who I am now. Um, And so by the time I was 16, I actually got really, really good at drawing these charts. Um, And I was getting more and more requests from friends to draw them, but they would take me Hours, um, you know, entire weekends, you know, coloring the charts, performing calculations, and if I miscalculated something, you know, it throw everything off, and I'd have to start all over again. So, um, I, I, you know, <laughs> as as any good scientist would do, I was triple checking things, but stuff would sometimes, you know, be wrong, and so I, I found myself in a computer science class about a year later. Um, and I was learning about programming and conditionals and the light bulb went off like, wow, I can actually use a computer to like solve all the problems I was having with drawing these charts, you know, um, maybe I should try to do that. And so I actually did. I embarked on creating this crazy astrology program that would calculate, do all the calculations for me, um, and had a really large data set, um, To this date, I'm not actually sure if I ever finished it, but I know that it definitely inspired me to want to become a computer scientist because it gave me the tools to solve a problem that I was passionate about.
1: And so now you work in the Department of Computer and Information Science and Engineering at the University of Florida where you focus on the integration of computing across the elementary and middle school curriculum.
2: Yes, that's right. I am the director of the Engaging Learning Lab. I have seven PhD students and five undergraduate students working in the lab. And we work on a variety of projects that focus on studying how people learn to code and develop identities as computational thinkers and computing professionals. Um, And so as part of that work, um, what we're really looking at is how do we design um, engaging experience for, experiences for students both in elementary school, middle school, high school, also undergraduate, um, such that you know, they can see themselves as software developers, game developers, mobile app developers, robot designers, and cybersecurity specialists um, through hands-on and project-based activities. Um, And the goal is to allow them to develop the skills they need to bring their ideas to life or if they're working for a client to bring their client's ideas to life Um, and and that they they feel ownership of computer science. It's not this foreign thing that other people make technologies for them. It's that they are able to make technologies for other people. Um, and to solve real problems. So in the same way that I was inspired to become a computer scientist, I want to inspire other people to become computer scientists and give them tools, give them access to these really, really powerful tools that um, that I think seem magical at times for for people, but they're really not. And so that's my
1: job is to demystify computer science and make it accessible—that's really great. And you said two things I want to expand on, and it leads me to a story that you told me the last time you talked that we talked together. Um, because you spoke about really helping students bring their ideas to life and demystifying computer science and coding and making it accessible. And I loved the story that you told me about. Uh, student that you worked with in your, was it your postdoctoral program? Yeah, it was in my postdoc. Can you just tell that story real quickly? Because I think that's a great example of what you are, what you just described.
2: Yes. So when I was in my postdoc at Georgia Tech, um, I was running a summer camp program um, for high school, you know, basically juniors through seniors. Um, that were um, maybe interested (laughs) in computer science. Like half of them were interested. Half of them were like, ah, my parents said I had to come. Um, (laughs) And the program was designed to engage underrepresented minorities. So women, um, students of color into computing and to do it in a way that um, bridged their interests. And so um, at some point we went out to schools and we were recruiting and I met this young lady and her name was Jaleesa. And um, she was a fashion designer. She was super stylish when I met her. Um, And so she said, and so, but she, you know, she was good at math and science. So she was, you know, a prime candidate to actually participate in our program. Um, She was already taking advanced placement courses. um, And so we asked her, would she be interested? And she said, well, I'm interested in fashion. If you can connect it to fashion, maybe I'll do it. And so we promised that she could we we would be able to connect it to fashion, so she came. And so that summer, we were in a repurposed room that used to be an old uh network server room, so the temperature was super cold. <laughs> And so um, I, I don't know what happened with with re- rewiring that room, but it was super cold. So every day she would come in with bigger and bigger coats until at some point she came in with a puffy jacket in the middle of Atlanta summer, right? Like, it's just ridiculous. And so she says, I know what problem I want to solve because we gave students an opportunity to solve problems um, that they were passionate about. And so her problem was um, solving uh, helping people who are anemic um, who have low blood, blood iron, um, you know, who often get cold because of that, um, keep warm without having to, to, you know, wear big, you know, huge puffy jackets in the middle of the summer. Um, and so using her fashion um, design skills, she decided, decided she was going to z- design a really low profile um, jacket who had heating elements woven in throughout such that if you just turned a, a, a normal button on the jacket, it would increase the temperature of, of, of the jacket or decrease it. Um, and so she, um, she created this jacket over the um, eight weeks of the summer program she then continued it on in, into the fall and um, actually submitted to compete in a regional Grace Hopper Conference, which is a celebration of women in computing conference. Um, so she submitted it there as a research project, um, and she was comp- she was a high school student at the time, actually a senior high school student, and she was competing against you know uh, you know college undergraduates, you know freshmen through seniors in undergrad. Um, And she won first place um, for her heated jacket, the Cozy Coat. Um, And so she had the opportunity to then travel to California and go to Grace Hopper, um, which is the national Women in Computing Conference, and present her work there and be um, honored as a scholar. Um, And she went on to take AP Computer Science and then to double major in Computer Science and Fashion Design. So um, her story inspires me and and really keeps me motivated. because there's so many for other stories like Jaleesa's um, for students that I've worked with that um, just inspire me to continue with this work and to know that making um, computing accessible and helping students connect it to what they're interested in is a, is a viable pathway for engaging underrepresented minorities in computer science.
1: Absolutely. And I think that just the opportunity to have that tangible Thing that she was able to create, I would imagine, just helped pique her interest. Like it wasn't something that you couldn't actually see in real life or reality. This was something that was tangible that she could wear, was fashionable. You know, it just really that's really an awesome story about just the power of what you can do when you're passionate about something um, and you see a problem or a challenge and you're using a body of knowledge to help you solve that problem or challenge. So that's that's really cool.
2: This project actually sustained her interest. A lot of times students lose interest in computer science because it gets challenging, but she persevered over the challenges and I think actually built about three different jacket designs um, and submitted it to her, um, her, her school-wide and district-wide competitions for the science fair and actually won and, and was promoted up to regionals. Wow. So so it's also a story of persistence. And that's one of the things that that inspires me as well.
1: That's really cool. And so speaking of things that kind of inspire you, ways that you can think about doing, using technology for different facets of work, I'd love to talk about your thoughts on just the future of work and specifically artificial intelligence or AI. Um, And so you are the co-chair of the AI for K-12 working group, which is a group that was formed by the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence and the Computer Science Teachers Association. And that group is charged with defining um, for artificial intelligence what students should know and be able to do. And so last December, December 2018, AI for K-12 drafted five big ideas that every student should know.
2: Absolutely. Um, The five big ideas in AI were motivated from a desire to make AI concepts accessible to K-12 teachers and students because not a day goes by that we don't read headlines about Alexa or other AI-enabled personal assistants, and there's fear and concern about self-driving cars or the newest AI enabled technology has helped farmers or doctors or scientists um, solve problems. Um, So we acknowledge that we are in a day and age of AI consumers where everyone has a smartphone A growing number of people are using these personal assistants at home or in their cars. Um, We use Snapchat filters to augment our pictures or Netflix or Pandora to make recommendations about the next new thing we should listen to. Um, but there's also this like, huge group of DIY, do-it-yourself do it makers, designers, and citizen scientists who are making use of freely available computing tools, 3D printing, and AI services to solve problems that are important to them and to create products and artifacts that inspire them. Um, there's also this like huge group of people who are bloggers and YouTubers who are, you know, seeking to share their expertise and opinions. So AI and computing ethics, et cetera, aren't the privileged domain of like academia or big industry companies or news outlets anymore. These technologies, ideas, and concepts are part of our everyday lives and our daily narrative. Um, so more than ever, I really feel like, um, AI is for the people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. it is for the people. And so if it's for the people, how do they learn how to use it? Where does that start? You know, how do they get access? I mean, for some people, they're already into technology or they've been raised, you know, doing, you know, things in computing. So, you know, to, you know, kind of jumping into this new domain is something easy. They just watch a video or they read a book or they tinker with it and they get it. But for some people, they actually need a little bit more Handholding holding a little bit more structured environment to learn about AI. And I really feel like um, that's what we're working on with the AI for K-12 guidelines is we're saying it's not for just the privileged, you know, who may find the inspiration to figure this out on their own. This is for people who, you know, within a structured environment can actually thrive and understand and, and create really amazing things. And so how do we help K-12 teachers and students know how to um, interact with AI, how to develop AI, and how to understand, like, what are its limits and what it can and cannot do. Um, And so our goal is to create, like, AI fluency, um, or some people call it AI literacy, Um, and I like to think about it as AI thinking, like um, uh, what are the the ways of thinking that AI enables for us, right? So computer science and computational thinking allows us to think about problems as something we can break down into smaller parts and something that we can create an algorithm that a computer or a series of steps that a computer can, solve, can use to solve a problem. What AI tells us, well... We don't always have to explicitly program these things anymore. We can teach technology through examples, you know, AI through examples, how to create their own solutions to these problems um, and, and leveraging that as a tool um, to create, you know, solutions to a wide range of problems that we haven't even begun to even think about. So let me uh, unpack some of these big ideas for you, but I just want to give you a little bit of context about where we were starting from and what really was motivating us to to get into this space. Um, So the first big idea is about computers perceive the world using sensors. So it's about perception. It's about computer perception. Like we have human perception, right? We have our senses. We have our eyes, our nose, our ears, our tongues, right? We can feel. Um, And so these human perceptions allow us to take in information about the world and to understand um, and interpret You know, what's going on around us and to have interactions with people. Well, computers use sensors as well. Um, and that's what this big idea is about is how do they use sensors and how do they make meaning from those sensors, right? So just because they see a picture of a cat or maybe they see a stop sign doesn't actually mean that they know what it means. How do they make meaning of what's in that picture? Um, and so perception is about the algorithms and the process by which computers make sense out of the things that the data that they pull in through their sensors. Um, it also bridges us into this idea that, you know, Computers and AI, you know, they perceive differently than humans, right? So we have our our perception system, our senses are connected to our brain, and our brain is what's doing the reasoning and the computation around making meaning. Um, our prior experiences help us make meaning. Um, so how do computers do this, right? So computers, they don't have they, their brain is the computer, right? The CPU, right? Central processing unit, um, but um, but essentially programmers are designing the framework to help the computer to, to perceive and understand, right. They're letting, they're helping the computer know, Oh, that, you know, octagon you see is actually that's red is a stop sign, right. That, that roundish thing that you see with, you know, two specks close to the top. Oh, oh, wait, those are eyes and that's a forehead and that's a mouth, right? Um, so it's helping them understand, you know, what is it that they're seeing, not just identifying, you know, blobs in a picture. It's actually helping them identify. So so I think one of the core ideas of these big, the, the big ideas in AI is that there's a role for humans to play in this, in this, in AI, and there's a role for the computer to play. Um, and that there's this symbios symbiotic relationship that's happening. It's not just a i is rogue and doing whatever it wants a i you know for the most part actually um operates in a pretty confined space on solving pretty narrow problems um that that you know a i designers or developers or um people who are employing a i used to solve problems. So um, perception is about that. And so we're thinking about, well, what is, what does this big idea look like for K2? Well, for K2, you know, maybe students are just learning the difference between the sensor at the supermarket and, you know, um, the camera sensor on on your laptop that opens (laughs) or your iPad that opens when it sees your face, right? So that's really what the first big idea about perception is about. Um the second big idea is about representations and reasoning so helping people understand well what is it that the computer has that helps it make sense and helps it uh you know make meaning right and so computers have representations kind of like we have representations right we have like ideas of mental models of what a house looks like if i asked you to describe a house you'd be able to tell me the shapes that go into a house right or if I asked you, you know, what your last meal was, you'd be able to describe it. So these are representations that you have in your own mind about the things you've interacted with in the world. Well, computers need to have representations like this as well, um, and so it looks like a little bit more like what we call in computer science data structured. So ways of storing information in structured ways. Um, so it might be trees or graphs or different ways of storing information. And reasoning is the way that it it navigates and accesses um, the information in these representations to make meaning. Um, And so um, a common way of thinking about representation and reasoning is to think about how does uh, a computer chess Play, you know, know how to play against you and know what moves to play, right? Um, it's not because it's programmed in. Every time this person makes this move, make that move, right? It's it's not so hard-coded like that. It's actually very dynamic where it's thinking about if this player makes this move, what are the possible moves that I can make? And what are the the, all the moves that I can make after that? And after that, that'll lead me to a winning game state. And then choosing from that collection of moves to say, Oh, I'm going to pick you know this one because it gives me the most possibilities of winning. You know, two, three, or four turns down the line. The third one is about um, learning. So computers can learn from data, um, and so we hear about machine learning and deep learning and neural nets all the time um, in the news and on TV. Right? Um, what does that mean? And that's what this big idea is about: is demystifying what is machine learning? Um, I think there is a conflation between machine learning and AI. So artificial intelligence is the broad field, and machine learning is a set of techniques that are used within AI, right? So it's a subdomain of of AI. Um, And so machine learning is um, really kind of awesome, right? If we think about um, how we learn, right? Like we learn by seeing examples of things. Um, as we're driving down the street and you're in the car with your your, your son, right? You may see a car and at some point he's going to be like, oh, car. And then he might see a truck and he might call it a car and he might see a bus and he might call it a car. And you have to teach him that, oh, no. You know, this is a car, but that bigger thing, that's a truck, and this really long thing here, that's a bus, right? Um, And teach them about these different things. And essentially, that's what we're doing in machine learning, is we're classifying data um, and giving it labels. Um, And then we're using those labels and that labeled data set um, to actually train a machine learning algorithm to know the difference between a bus and a truck and a bus, a bus and a car, Right. Um, And so this is a really important um, big idea, one, because it's getting so much airplay, but also because I think there's a lot of mystery around what's really happening here. Um, And so our goal with this is to help students understand, you know, you know, what role do um, AI designers and developers play in um, creating machine learning algorithms or systems that use machine learning algorithms and who's responsible for the decisions that they make, right? Um, you know, there's all these conversations about bias and you know bias in AI algorithms. Where does it come from? Does it come from the algorithm? Does it come from the designer? You know, where does it come from? And essentially, um, you know, there's this principle of garbage in, garbage out, right? And if you don't have a good data set, a computer can't make good decisions. <laughs> So if that data set is not labeled really well um, or doesn't take into the consideration all the types of questions that someone might ask that data set, it's not going to be able to answer it very well, right? If I have a data set all about cats and then I start showing it dogs, it's not going to have any clue what I'm showing it. And it's not going to recognize the dog very well. And it's not any fault of the dog. <laughs> it's not any fault of algorithm, it's the fault of, you know, the fact that we don't have enough data to make decisions about the things that we're now being presented with. Um, mm-hmm. And so getting students to actually be able to build, you know, or modify some AI system that uses a machine learning algorithm, maybe through training it, so training the classifier so it learns about different examples, or um, actually, you know, trying it out in the world and seeing its limitations. I think people will come to understand um, the intricacies and the complexities of, of of machine learning and be able to appreciate that it's not this omniscient thing. <laughs> understand the sources of bias and not, you know, feel like they need to blame people for, for not being inclusive. You know, sometimes it may be a case of someone's not being inclusive, but a But a lot of times it's what's more convenient. These data sets are, you know, really large. You need really, really large data sets to actually um, solve problems and reason about them. And so if you don't have a large data set of maybe, you know, African-American faces or hands or things like that, you may not be, or women's faces or hands, right? You may not be able to accurately um, identify them. And so that just tells us we need to be building better data sets.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it speaks to the opportunity that you were talking about previously, uh, just about the role that human beings have to play in all of this and really stresses that even more, right? So I and I think that I think that's too where people get confused to your point. It's you know, not this omniscient just actor, you know, operating rogue in the world. <laughs> so um there's really opportunity for human beings to play a significant role in all of this. And I think it's really incredible that these um, guidelines that are coming out, because we have to start young with students understanding that.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the last two big ideas are really big. <laughs>
1: um,
2: the The fourth big idea is about um, natural interaction. So, you know, making agents naturally interact with humans and understanding that this is a challenge for AI designers is it's non-trivial. Um, we have things like natural language processing, which is, you know, trying to parse our text. Like if we were to use the audio from this call, you know, parse our text to understand what are we talking about and, and what ideas are connected to which ideas um, and helping build context, right? Because we as humans, we're really... Um, we're actually really powerful computational agents, right? Um, we can have this conversation and then, you know, you at the start of this this um, recording, you know, pulled back all the way to a conversation we had two weeks ago and you were able to remember that. Well, when I interact with Alexa, it's not doing that. <laughs> Alexa can barely remember what I said to mm-hmm, two, two right. requests ago, right? <laughs> because that's not how she's programmed. That's not how she's designed. She's designed to be a transactional agent, whereas humans... Are, um haha, conversational agents right like we're maintaining context we are we um, are able to understand a lot of ambiguity ambiguity in conversation based on our, our context and based on our prior experience in history with that person or that topic um, to begin to to hold engaging conversations and so this fourth big idea is about how do we do that you know how do we get Computers to be able to hold these type of fluid conversations where it's not transactional like Alexa or Google or whatever, where or Siri like where we, we have to give a wake word and then a request and if you don't have that request formulated well, it will not carry out that request. It's like I'm not really sure what you're asking me to do. Try again, right? right. Um, we don't. If, if we had those types of conversations with our family members, we'd be infuriated. <laughs> So how do we make computers have these more conversations? Um, This big idea is also about things like emotional intelligence, right? Like as humans, we have a tremendous set of resources to interpret when people are sad or angry or happy or excited. You know, we're listening to their voice. We're looking at their face. We're reading their body language. Well, how do we teach computers to be able to do that Um, and to be able to do that well? Right, because uh, if you've ever been in a classroom and you're teaching, you could sometimes be fearful that you're boring students to death because their face are just blank stares. But then, you know, when you pause to ask a question, that same student that was looking with a blank stare asks this amazing question or makes this great comment, and you realize their face was just, you know, looked blank because they were processing and thinking and concentrating. Right, So, you know, there are all these miscues that someone can read, you know, about about people as well. Um, And so how do we teach computers to understand those things? Um, You know, there's things like sentiment analysis that would fall into this category, which, you know, is being used right now to detect bullying or depression and things like that in social media um, posts. Um, and so um that's we're we're actually doing fairly well in that. Um the emotion detection, we're growing in that area, but to do it fluidly like a human, we're not quite there yet. Um and so this big idea, um, like I said, has a lot of stuff in it. There's stuff about collaboration, like how do you collaborate with robots or AI agents? How do you work cooperatively with them? What does that mean? Um, you know, how do you, you know, how do you design a robot such that, you know, it stays close enough for you to ask it questions and for it to respond and handle things you need, but not so close that if you decided to stop abruptly, that it would be running over you and the two of you would be on the ground, right? Um, so that it can give you that social space that we as people are cognizant of and, re- and understand. Um, this idea also gets into this, you know, something that's fairly controversial, which is about consciousness you know, can AI have consciousness? So it's kind of philosophical. Um, it's been a longstanding debate for many years. Um, this is like the crux of the, the Turing uh, test from Alan Turing, um, which is actually, um, you know, about can can a person, you know, detect if it's a computer or a human that it's talking to? Um, and what does that mean to be conscious? And what does it mean to be intelligent? Um so the idea that you know ai can one day be sentient in the way that humans are sentient and aware um is this concept of um artificial general intelligence um where it, it has the same level of intelligence as a human possibly more um and that we're really far off from that like that is that's i mean yeah we're really far off from that Um, If you talk to any AI expert, what they'll tell you is that what we've done really well is narrow artificial intelligence, you know, domain specific artificial intelligence. So we're able to detect retinal um, neuropathy, which is a disease of the eye um, caused by diabetes. We're able to detect that really quickly from a cell phone and really accurately much, much faster than a human because there are specific markers that can be detected. Um, And we can do that well. We can play chess. We can play go. We can play these things that are a little bit more structured and confined. Um, We can identify cats or dogs in pictures or faces because there's a well-defined structure to them. But those are very small domains. Um, To be able to have general intelligence where we're combining all the levels of intelligence that we have from our sensing and perceptions of the environment, our sensing and perception of other people and interpretation and making meaning of what they're saying and putting that all together to become what we are as a human and putting that into an artificial um, uh, robot or, or agent. We are not anywhere near close to that, but the individual things we are growing rapidly and very fast on. Um, so this big idea is really about helping students understand, one, the difference between human and artificial intelligence, and two, what's working well in artificial intelligence and what's possible right now.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of that's coming out, too, and just thinking about the future of work that is talking about what you're speaking on right now is just those uniquely human characteristics that um, AI may someday, well, in the future, have. But just how are you? How are we thinking about preparing jobs for people to continue to do those uniquely human elements, such as compassion and these sorts of things? Um, that and the question too would be like: Do we want AI to to kind of venture into those um, sectors uh, that are based upon uniquely human characteristics? So I think that's a really important understanding for people to have too. Is that we'll still need people to to feel to be able to to have those things that make us in our very nature human, right? Um, absolutely, absolutely. And that's what the
2: fifth big idea is about. Um, is about social impacts. Um, it's is really being able to have discussions about what are the beneficial or harmful effects of AI in society, right? Right build something that you think is going to help, but in, in doing that, it also harms another part of the economy. How do we address that? You know, so that's really what this fifth big idea is about. It's about thinking about the ways that AI can be applied to solve problems. Like I told you about the retina uh, neuropathy diagnosis in third world countries. Um, it could be about self-driving cars. It could be about you how to use AI systems to detect bullying, or to make decisions about prison sentencing, um, so we get again into the ethics and bias questions here. We get into, you know, if you can make it, should you make it? We get into those conversations about, you know, if you can make it, you know, how do you make it such that it's accessible for all people? Um, And so you begin looking at the applications, the implications, and, you know, what are we going to do to mitigate any any harmful risks that may arise because of that? And so I think this fifth big idea is going to give us lots of fruitful conversations and hopefully prepare students to have these kind of conversations with their friends and family outside of the classroom, such that we can decrease the fear that people have around AI and Begin to think about it a little bit more soberly and in perspective about what is possible. And then, you know, what is it that we should be doing or can be doing with AI? Um, so, you know, at some point, you know, are the students of, that are in, you know, class of 2021, 2022, right? They're going to even 2050 are going to be voting On you know you know laws regarding AI, they're going to be voting. They're going to be in juries deciding you know if an AI agent is guilty or if a human agent is guilty, and who should be taking responsibility. And they need to have a, a basic knowledge about how AI works and what's possible, and who who's doing the designing. Who you know what things are black box, what things are intentional, to be able to make these decisions wisely. Yeah.
1: And that kind of leads to, I mean, the one question that comes up in my mind then with these big ideas and and trying to get um, students and their teachers to understand more about AI, more understand more about these fluency and ideas that you guys have laid out. The question is just for me, um, how? Like the paper ends with the call to the AI community to provide opportunities for students and teachers to learn more about AI and how it will shape their future. But how do you envision that actually happening? How do you see the community like getting into schools and teaching about AI, even if it's not um, organizations or businesses who are helping shape this? How do you think that it's going to shape education and, and actually translate down into a teaching and learning opportunity?
2: Well. I think that um, there's been a lot of work um, in the CS education community around getting computer science into the K-12 classrooms. Our goal isn't to necessarily create a whole new curriculum and a whole new um, set of guidelines that, you know, now have to be implemented as a standalone course, but it's to piggyback on the efforts that are already going on in the CS education community to get computing into K-12 class to train teachers. So um, with the guidelines, we we are not creating curriculum at all. What we're doing is we are creating um, guidelines or what some might call standards in other communities to um, help teachers and students know what is important um, to know about AI. Um, and we can, because we're working with um, 16 K through 12 teachers, uh, four at each grade band, um, is, is, Helping to figure out what are the connections back to things that they would already be learning in their math, science, and social studies class or English class, Um, and what what might they already be learning about computing and how these can be integrated in. Because we know teachers don't have a tremendous amount of time to build new lessons or to cover everything, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's so much in the curriculum to cover it already. So, looking at ways that we can actually piggyback on what's going on um, with existing efforts. So, that's our first way. Um, Our second way is um, through actually creating these guidelines. So um, creating guidelines um, that actually explain, you know, AI, you know, you know, what should students know about it? So understand, you know, core concepts and foundational concepts and each of those five big ideas. Um, And also what should they be able to do? So, you know, that creating, um, that because uh, I believe if, if students create things um, and learn skills, it empowers them to use these skills and tools in the future outside of the outside of the classrooms um, and in the community. I think for me, a big part of the the guidelines are about what students should be able to do um, in empowering students um, and giving them the tools. So that brings us to our third um, objective, which is to build a community of AI um, Resource designers and developers, so people who are designing, designing curriculum, designing activities, designing tools um, that bring AI to life for students, um, that allow them to look under the proverbial hood of AI and understand what's happening in that black box, um, what you know, what's really happening. So that way, it's not magic, right? It's something that they can understand. That's something that's understandable um, that they can reason about. Um, And so that's our goal is to build this resource library. I'll also build a community that can help us fill this resource library. There are a tremendous amount of tools that are out there already that are amazing. They demonstrate opportunity. They give students opportunities to build classifiers, to uh, classify data and train machine learning algorithms to, to recognize a whole sort of things from pictures to images, to sounds, to, to anything you can think of. So they allow you to do that, but right now they don't allow you to look under the black box. So we're making a call out to the AI uh, research community that says, Hey, help people look under the box of how these neural nets work, or help them look under the box about what representations are in a Netflix recommender, or you know, uh, um, or how does the Snapchat filter work? You know, help them understand what's happening, what is all the processing, the reasoning, the computation that's happening underneath these things. You can do that videos, you can do that through interactive activities, you can do that through unplugged activities, so things that don't even require the computer, um, and. Providing a a host of ways for for teachers and students to access these ideas.
1: And I just want to point out, too, that you mentioned all of the resources um, that are being collected as a portion of this. And that is all available on the website, which is AI4K12.org, right? Yes. The resource directory. And so that is really great. And you guys are doing a host of events throughout the rest of this year where you're talking more about this. And then ultimately, this will all result in those national guidelines, which when when do you think those will come out?
2: We're hoping to have a draft of them this summer and I say draft because with any new project that's starting from scratch you 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 know you're going to have to go back and iterate. So our goal is yeah. to have a draft out by this summer but we know we're going to be doing some more iteration and as teachers are becoming more comfortable with the stuff and trying it out we're we're probably going to do another pass on it fairly shortly after, just to kind of clean up some stuff, loose ends that we may have missed. And as we're engaging, you know, both the teacher community, the CS education community, and the AI research community, um, being able to understand if we have gaps and getting that feedback along the way, um, it's one of those things we'll be doing as well.
1: I wanted to just get your thoughts to Christina, because you mentioned a little bit of this when you were talking about Jaleesa's story, but we know that, unfortunately that there are some girls and students of color who may be intimidated by computer science either because they don't see themselves represented in those fields or because they think that they're not good at that type of work. And so how, how are you working to change those perceptions and what would your advice be for students who are feeling that way in particular?
2: I think um, for me, one of the ways that I personally try to um, break down those uh, stereotypes and perceptions is just by being visible. Um, so going to speak to students in their classrooms, hosting these summer camps and after school programs, um, you know, making sure that the students that are in my lab are representative of the types of communities that we want to go into and that people are aware of the issues. Um, I think a lot of times, Um, Even though we talk about it, there's a lot of people that are still very um, naive about the barriers of entry for women and underrepresented minorities in computing. Um, And so, you know, partially partially doing a little bit of advocacy work where it's like where that opportunity comes up to say, hey, you know, we should be doing this. We should be making sure that we're getting into minority or under-resourced communities and, and schools, um, so I think that's that's one of the ways um i think i think for me what's most impactful isn't just going and telling students they can do it, it's giving them the opportunity to do it um and so that's why for me these after school and summer camp programs are really pivotal um i i think um If it wasn't for me actually being able to create something, if it wasn't actually for Jaleesa to be able to create something and connect it back to her passion, she probably never would have pursued computer science. So I think that there is a really big need of being able to help students explore the field, not just as an outsider looking in, but from an insider, you know, pushing out. Um, One of the students that I worked with when I was at Georgia Tech, and I tell these stories because they're at the point now where they're they're mature and they have jobs in computing, right? Um, And and I think, you know, seven years ago when I started working with these students, um, I I wasn't sure where their story was going to go. I just knew that I felt like I was doing the right thing and I felt like I was making an impact. But it's now that I look back on their lives and their trajectories and go, yes, it was that program was one of the pivotal points in their in their trajectory, that I I feel like we, these stories need to be told. Um, so one student I was working with um, when I was at Georgia Tech at the same time I was working with a man um, with uh, Jaleesa. Actually, it was the semester after um it was that fall we decided to move it from just a summer camp to an after a semester long after school program um which actually ended up being a year long after school program um and we met Amanda and Amanda was you know from you know a rough background um and she was really street smart and savvy and she just wanted a job that she could work in an education that would allow her to to increase the opportunities for her family and herself and so um she hadn't been involved with any technical um, after school programs or, or clubs or anything, but somehow we got her to participate in this um, uh, program at Georgia Tech. Um, and um, she she came to us and she, we always, like I said, we always have students think about what is it that they, what problem would they like to solve? And for her, she wanted to solve um, problems for um, families with deaf children. So hearing, Parents, um, but that had deaf children, and that were needing to learn sign language and understand how to better communicate with their children. Um, and so, um, I said deaf; I meant blind. Um, and so, one of the things um, that she wanted to do was create a Braille, a, a tablet-based Braille reader um, that would allow, um, you know, parents to. Uh, read stories to their kids, but also provide the Braille for for, for the children, um, and also help the parents actually learn how to read Braille. Um, and so, you know, as part of any project, you got to break it down into parts. So, the first part she was working on was doing a Braille, uh, was doing a text to Braille translation. Um, and so, one of the ways she wanted to represent the Braille was through LED lights. Um, so, you know, little small lights that she'd arrange in, in, in patterns that when they lit up, they would actually, you know, create the Braille pattern um, and then show beneath that um, the text that went along with it. So that uh, a parent and a child could read a story at the same time. And so she created that. And you know, she struggled a little bit with the programming. She wasn't as as passionate about the programming, but she felt like, man, this electrical engineering stuff de- building these circuits. I-, I really like this. This part doing things with my hands, this is what I can do. Um and so, um so she got excited about that part of the project, um, and she went on to present. Um, for AT&T um, at the time was running a competition um, using the Arduino boards for, for students to create devices and actually you know, pitch those products to um, AT&T executives at the time. Um, and so um, she, I believe her team won second place in that competition. Um, but, but that set her on a path to become more interested. So when she, she was a junior at the time, so she started taking some computer science classes the next year, And then she kind of struggled through those a little bit. But then she was like, but I still like this stuff. So she decided she was going to go on and major in computer science. Well, fast forward, she has majored in computer science, graduated with a degree in computer science. She has interned um, at companies. She's done research at several different um, national labs um, and universities. And now she's a PhD student at University of Alabama. And it's just amazing. And she's a PhD student in computer science. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Um, And so I think, you know, to double back on your initial question about perceptions, I think there are things students believe about themselves um, initially. One, because, you know, they don't necessarily, they've never explored the area. So they may go, I don't really have an interest in it. But we give them an opportunity to explore it. They go, hmm, I'm interested in this part, but not that part. Uh, if you keep them engaged um, and you sustain that engagement, it allows them to explore, you know, the depth of their skills to actually build skills and to, you know, in, in, in Amanda's case, you know, she ended up building up skills in an area that she was weak and she didn't really understand and somewhat a little fearful in the programming to mastering that. And that being part of her major part of her career trajectory. Right. And so I I guess the message to me and I hope to everybody else is that don't give up on students. Um, Just because they don't look like they're, quote unquote, getting it or they may not be into it, you know, right away. Give them some time. Give them some space. Sometimes the initial perception and persona they give off of, oh, I'm not interested in this is because they're fearful of it and they're not sure how well they're going to do. Give them that space to fail softly and quietly and (laughs) and to get feedback. Um, you know, it builds their confidence to the point where they're like, you know what, I can do this and I want to do it. And that's the thing, that they're making the choice, not us.
1: Yeah, that's such good advice. And I think just from the standpoint of where it all starts, it starts with allowing them to explore and base it on a project based learning um, standpoint or a problem based learning just really having inquiry about this topic area, which is what we recommend in education generally, right? And, it, and so therefore, it should apply to when you're talking about computer science as well. If you have the opportunity to actually do something, and if it's based upon something that you're interested in or passionate about, it's more likely to stick and keep you engaged. What are your predictions on the future work and how it's going to impact people and communities?
2: Well, um, there's several answers to this. And, uh, you can have this conversation probably a hundred times and come up with new things each time. Right. <laughs> um, but I think one of the big things that, that occurs to me is that um, we don't really know what the future of work is going to be, right? Because when I was in middle school, there was n- we weren't thinking about the internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that's right. <laughs> like we weren't thinking about the internet. We definitely weren't t- thinking about social media, and that I would have Facebook or Twitter or any of that stuff. And so I think. A lot of the future of work and a lot of the future of the technologies that we're going to be interacting with are the seeds in, in these children's bellies right now. And we need to create fertile soil and water and cultivate the dreams and visions that they have um, because that's the future of work. That's the future of our society. Um, and I know that sounds like super philosophical, um, but I, I, I fundamentally believe that I don't even think I have enough imagination to imagine what the future of work would be in that context. But what I can say is that um, what's gonna be really important is that students be agile, right? That they they understand that yes, I'm gonna get this, you know, um, you know, 13 years of experience in these classes in K-12. I may even get an undergraduate degree or some, you know, or some graduate level degree. But through all of my education, there's going to be stuff that's going to be taught to me. There's going to be stuff that I'm going to have to be reaching out and looking at what's changing around the world and what, what is it that I'm curious about and need to learn about. Um, so I'm always a lifetime learner. Um, I think if, if we cultivate any skill in our student and we're going to and if we had to you know, choose something, that would that's what I would choose. I would choose to invest in, in helping students understand how to learn and how to continue learning and how to make decisions on their own, right? I think a lot of times we, we, we try to teach students how to solve problems in certain ways. And um, we're starting to break out of that now, you know, when we're thinking about inquiry learning and, and project-based learning and, and problem-based learning. We're trying to teach students how to ask good questions and give them the tools to answer
1: them. That's the key any final thoughts that you have, Christina?
2: I think for, um, you know, just a message to all the students and teachers, you know, is that when you're, when you're teaching these students is help them realize that, you know, they may not see the job and the career they want um, right in front of them right now, but to imagine what that that job or that career might be and to seek after it.
1: That is wonderful advice, Christina. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today on the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you for having me and allowing me to chat so long.
0: (laughs) A big thanks to Christina Gardner-McCune for speaking with us today. We love how much she stressed that one key to getting students hooked on computer science is to really allow them to follow their passions and drive their learning based on something they're interested in, or propose a problem or challenge that they can solve with technology. And we couldn't agree more with her that the future of work will require all of us to be lifelong learners. For more thinking on the future of work, be sure to head to our website and look for the Future of Work series. You can also visit GettingsMart.com slash Future of Work. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart Podcast on iTunes as well. And while you're there, hit subscribe and leave us a rating. And for more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.